This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as part of the 2022 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. Father, I thank you for Matt. Thank you for giving him the opportunity to come speak to us tonight and for the opportunity that we have to hear him speak about, uh, about your word and about the Christian community that we all so desperately need and uh, just should covet, should value above all things. Not all things, but should value. Um, and yeah, I just thank you. Um, I pray that uh, you would speak through Matt tonight, that your spirit would uh, give him the words to say, that you would give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear, um, that, you, again, you would just speak directly through Matt. Let any words that are helpful to our ears just, again, penetrate our hearts and any, ears that aren't, any words that aren't helpful just fall to the ground and not be heard. Um, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to listen to Matt tonight, and I just pray, pray for him and pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Hey, everybody. I'm going to move this stand over. Um, I know almost no one in the room, uh, so I just want to help you know who I am a little bit. I uh, have a lot of history in, in Minnesota. How many of y'all are from CO Minneapolis? Good chunk. All right. And then there are people from St. Louis, right? And there are people from Louisville. Is that right? Is that everybody? I miss anybody? Did I say it wrong? I said Louisville. That's how I say it. What is it? Louisville? Did some people say it like that? Louisville. Louisville? That's just real bad. Um, but uh, I have a lot of history actually here in Myrtle Beach and in Minneapolis. I came to Minneapolis in 2004 um, and lived there until 2015 at the U of M. Go Ghosts. And um, uh, my wife was born and bred uh, White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Went to the U of M. She played volleyball for the Gophers from 2001 to 2005. They went to the Final Four junior year, lost the national championship senior year. Still a wound. Don't talk to her about it. Um, she's not here. Uh, but when she was a senior, she, the girls who played, she's, she's my height, like shortest girl on the team. So she was a DS. She played on the back row, and they were known for their defense. And so the girls on the back row, Lisa, then Reinhardt, Marcy Pinata, and Paula Shinshu, were known as the Three Amigos. And uh, this hasn't really aged well, but at every bus stop in the Twin Cities, there was a picture of those three stacked three high, like a totem pole, with uh, sombreros on. And uh, it was incredibly embarrassing for her. So, and like we went to her grandmother's house sometime in the last several years, and she like unrolled the poster, and she saw it. She was very proud of her granddaughter, but it was ugly. And, uh, but that, that was where I lived. And then from 2004 to 2006, I was on staff at Northwestern, and then also at Bethel at the same time. We just started on those canvases and then lived at the U of M the whole time on Huron Boulevard. There's nothing there anymore. And then at 612 Erie Street, there's nothing there anymore. Um, uh, across the street from Paul and Sam Poteet. You guys know, anybody know the Poteets? Right, so, so we, we planned our pregnancies with the Poteets, literally. Uh, my daughter Annie, who's back there, is 13 years old. She is six days older than Maddox Poteet. And my daughter Lucy is two months older than Sophie Poteet. And um, yeah, so uh, it just feels really sweet to be here with you guys. We we prayed for y'all, like in, in the in the early mid 2000s. We prayed for for y'all, Minnesota people. Not so much everybody else, but kind of. Um, but I also have a lot of history in Myrtle Beach. Like uh, this church, Pine Drive Pres or Pine Drive Presbyterian, Pine Drive Gospel Church. Oki Landers, the pastor, just stepped in here to kind of unobtrusively turn the the air up. Thankfully, but he's just been a really faithful. Um, friend and mentor to a lot of us. He's done theology time for us for years and years, and um, I gave my first talk, I think, from that pulpit, actually, in this church in 2005, so it's, it's kind of fun. 
to be here. I also set every set and gutted every toilet in your hotel. Um, they're all one holers, um, and <laughs> it's just the grossest way to say a bathroom is. Like it just, at least <laughs> one toilet. It's a one holer. Come on. But I hope that those wax rings are still holding any leaks in any, any bathrooms anywhere. When um, the hotel has not always been what it was or what it is now, it's it's really a marvel. It's basically a four star now. But when um, when I, th I think this was probably two, <laughs> that was an exaggeration. In like 2010, um, my daughter Annie, the 2010 2011. Sorry, Annie. I realize that you are 13 and this is embarrassing for you, but that's okay. That's how you learn and grow. Um, Two things happened. One of them is going to be really embarrassing for you, Annie, and that's okay. Two things happened this year. We were in the corner in the four-story. Uh, this was like room 206, I think. And, uh, and Annie was potty training. And uh, one of the things about bringing kids to Project is that you... <laughs> you're going to hate me for this. Uh, is that uh, they can tend to relapse during the Project. Uh, and so, like, when you have a little transition. And so she was incredibly precocious. I didn't know that she, in, in the potty training realm she wasn't quite two yet. Um, but uh, we brought a little, a little squatty potty to the, to, to, the, to the project, and she was in a little rebellious phase when it came to that, and so every time she had to go to the bathroom, be like, go, go in that thing, and she squatted down next to the toilet, stared us in the face, and peed on the floor. Um, like, stared us in the face. And so, in that, that same summer, we slept her in the bathroom, because that's what parents at Project do. We slept our daughter Zoe, who's five now, at one project in the bathtub. Um, but you just gotta, you gotta figure out how to make it work. There wasn't water in it. And the... So we had a pack and play in the bathroom. And a couple mornings in a row, Annie woke up wet. And we're like, oh, she, she, you know, wet herself, wet her pajamas during the night. And then, but we realized it was kind of a weird dispersion of, of liquid. And so, uh, and so we found out after two days that, that the ceiling had been leaking on Annie for two days. And we were like, we're terribly negligent parents to have her here. I can't believe it. That's for the sake of the gospel. That's for the sake of y'all, for the sake of the students that we pray for. But uh, I, I believe that the project, the hotel has come a long way. So I'm, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for that. But thankful to be here. Uh, I'm now, so the Lord called us to Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. I'm now the regional director in, of CO Charleston down the road. It takes us an hour and 15 minutes to get here. And uh, we have, Lisa and I have been married for 16 years. We got married uh, February 18th, 2006. The high temperature, we got married in Moundsview, Minnesota, in the north side of Bethlehem Baptist Church. The high temperature that day was negative seven. Uh, yeah, you guys are like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, actually, I do, because I've been in the South for so long, the accents and just the little nuances come back strong. So I heard root beer up here, and I know, I know somebody else did too, because I saw somebody over here mouth it. You did. You mouth it to the person next to you. You were like, root beer. When, what's your name? What's your name right there? Emily, when you said it, you said root beer. Yeah. And so it's okay. It's, it's Minnesota, you know. And uh, I also heard, what's your name, guy? Jared. Jared was like, Overage. Yeah, you said overage, like real strong with the O. And uh, yeah, so when we moved to Minnesota, a couple of things happened. First of all, because we all, we transplanted a team from South Carolina to Minnesota. And so we had this team of Southerners. And so I would talk to Minnesotans often and I would ask them, first of all, they'd always be like, are you from Texas? And I'd be like, no, the whole South is not Texas. And, and then they would, but I would, after like a half hour of conversation, I'd be like, let me ask you a question. Did you consider me or just assume that I was ignorant because of my accent over the course of the last 30 minutes, and half the people would say yes. They'd say they considered that, they thought I was ignorant. I don't feel like I have a very strong accent either, but they would say, yeah, I thought, I thought that you were probably ignorant because of the way that you talk. I thought it was interesting. But 
one of the, the, I don't know if you call this a rude awakening, but a striking awakening was I would go to Northwestern football games. You play football for Northwestern, right, Ethan? I go to Northwestern football games. First game I went to, the thing about football is, first of all, when there's a violation, they throw a flag, okay? Second of all, the middle linebacker for Northwestern at that time, his name was Jordan Daggett. Uh, and so this is what I heard the whole game. Flag on the play. There's a flag, 15-yard penalty, tackle made by Jordan Daggett. I'd hear that over and over and over again. And I thought to myself, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense phonetically. I tried to figure out, how many of y'all have just noticed that people say bag or tag or flag? I mean, you work at Walmart, so you're bag all the time. Right? Is it strong, Noah? Is it strong? Yeah, and so I, I tried to think it through. It's probably a bad idea to make fun of the accent when I'm in your natural habitat. But uh, I tried to think it through because we just say bag right, or flag, like we would say bat or cat, like any other short A sound. And I would actually try to teach Minnesotans. <laughs> There's one guy, Elliot Stokes. His dad is Kenny Stokes, for those of you who know Kenny. He was on staff with us. We were on the way back from a New Year's conference, and I was trying to teach him how to use the A-G sound with a short A. And I said, say, bag. And he said, big. And I said, bag. And he said, big. And I said, okay, come on, bag. Make that like bat, cat. And he said, bat, cat. Okay. Bag, big. And I was like, okay. And he, so he had a two-syllable. He's go, big, big, And he was, I would watch him. It was like his larynx couldn't form it. He was like, he was doing this on the bus. Like, and he got it by the end of the trip. He got it the whole time. But I remember thinking to myself, this is the thing that really gets me about the, the AG sound, is let's say that you're listening to a phonics tape, okay, with your five-year-old, all right? A tape. Uh, we had tapes when I was a kid. A phonics YouTube video, and, and let's say there's a lady on the video, and she says, the letter A makes the short sound, ah, as in big. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So y'all can feel free to keep it. It doesn't bug me that much. My wife is Minnesotan. She's basically gotten over it, but it is striking when I come back into it. So all I say, glad to be here. Um, that's, we're talking about community. Uh, so let's talk. You guys, if y'all have notes, if y'all used to taking notes, go ahead and pull them out. We don't have an outline tonight. Uh, I'll try to number some things so you can follow along. Uh, as we talk about community, I don't know what has come before. I assume there's ample overlap, but you probably forgot a lot of things that were said last week already, so that's okay. Um, most of the things that they're gonna, you're going to learn in the rest of your life are going to come to you by way of reminder, not as new information. So go ahead and get used to repeating the same things over and over again and being happy with that. It's good for you. If you had 100% retention, even, even if you were savant, like Rain Man or something. Uh, it doesn't mean that you would emotionally feel the things you ought to feel about the things that you know. So it's good to hear the same things over and over and over again. There are multiple places in the Bible where you will hear Paul or Peter or someone say, I'm, I'm writing these things to you by way of reminder, to stir you up by way of reminder. So we're going to talk about community tonight. And the biggest reminder that you should hear every day for the rest of your life, probably multiple times, is this. This is, this is a paraphrase of Martin Luther. Uh, but he says, basically, the law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, it is done. It is done. Now go live. And I know you've been learning that all summer. And I'm just going to say it again. Because once you get into the, like the, the practical living parts of the Christian life, you start talking about community, you can forget that it's all flowing out of this message that says, it is done now go live. So before you start feeling like, am I doing community right? I got to do better. I got to do better. And you, you switch back on your, your you kind of put your law hat back on. I want you to remember it is done. Like everything that Sam just said, 
Sam Gersack, right? Is that right? Sam, thank you. Thank you for your story. It's powerful. I'm like, it's done. That means that, that means that the work is done for Sam. And now the call, when we talk about community tonight, the call is to go live. To go live. Not because you're going to earn favor, ultimately. Not because there's some sort of added requirement for you, but because Jesus is inviting you now that he has done all the work required for you to be accepted into the affections of the Father is saying, go live. And so as we talk about community, there are going to be some things I say tonight that, aren't, that don't sound um, fun or necessarily that palatable. And I just want to remind you at the beginning that this is not a call for you to be dutifully earning those things that you need to do so that you can find some extra identity. All the things I'm saying tonight, as I just basically try to describe what gospel community is, they're all an invitation to, to live because the work's already been done for you. This is just a, a description of what life looks like as those who've had the work done for you. So I just want to remind you that um, as we step into this kind of Trinitarian reality that is um, gospel community. The other day I was having a conversation with my wife and my sister-in-law, who's not a believer. We were in northern Wisconsin up in uh, Bayfield, if any of you guys know where that is, near the Apostle Islands. And it was beautiful. It's like highs in the 60s, and then I came back to sweltering South Carolina. And um, she said that she is part of this uh, this group that's supposed to, like, train you in networking. And she's like, yeah, we're supposed to, like, help each other network with jobs and stuff, but really we, we use it to get to know each other and go deep. And I thought to myself, she's describing something like what we do with, like, discipleship groups or, or Bible studies and stuff. And I thought to myself, why, why don't people who aren't believers just say that the body of Christ is what they're looking for? Why don't they say it? Because it's just right there. It's like this giant elephant in the middle of the room. It's like, I think all the things that you're looking for, some sort of being known, be like knowing and being known fully. And then in being known fully, being accepted fully. Being able to express yourself all the way and have somebody still say, hey, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I understand. I want to walk with you in this. I want to I ask challenging questions. Like all that. It's like, oh, you know, I think that's gospel community on some level. But she's not willing to go there. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to understand why, when it's right in front of your face, that you don't go there. So I want to look at a text, and we'll be, we're not going to be expositionally looking at this text completely, but we'll dip in and out of it. This is in First Peter, which this is Deschel's book for the summer, right? First Peter. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. 4 through 10. And I think this helps answer the question, why don't they just say that the body of Christ is what they're looking for? when it offers all the things that they're actually looking for. So I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. I'm going to pray, and we get into this. Uh, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. I hope you hear done there. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the beauty of your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have become the chief cornerstone. I thank you so much that once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That it's not just Sam in this room that's received mercy. We collectively, as, as those being built into a house, as living stones, we have all received mercy. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help that to land on us. I confess that never, never in my life have I felt and expressed uh, myself and my emotions, my praise, in line with the magnitude of that truth. I'm sorry for that. I thank you for your mercy, that I've received mercy, that we together have received mercy. I pray that you would help us just in hearing your word to be transformed and to help us to live in truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the answer to the question, why don't they just say that the body of Christ is what they're looking for, I think is found in this passage. First, in the very first phrase, as you come to him. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And so I think what happens in that moment is she's thinking to herself, I want to connect to people in the spiritual house way. I want to connect to people deeply, spiritually, emotionally, but I don't want to come to him. I don't want to believe in him. I don't want to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I certainly, if you drop all the way down to verse 9, I certainly don't want to say that the purpose of my life is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness and called us collectively out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't want to say that the point of this community is to proclaim the excellencies of another. And so what people want, they want to know and be known. Right? They want, they, they, they want to have this intimate connection. They especially want to be known. If you ask somebody a question about themselves, they're going to talk for a long time. And they want to know that they can be fully accepted, but they don't. At, and, and this is the distinction. I think one of the primary distinctions between a believer and not is what they don't want to do is say, my life is to lift up another. My life is to proclaim the excellencies of another. And so I just want to say, because this is the express purpose in 1 Peter 2, that the point of Christian community is to proclaim the excellencies of another, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when you get this idea, a lot of this is just unlearning assumptions, right? When you get this idea that Christian community is this simply horizontal connection of knowing and being known being fully accepted, stepping into a place where these people love me, which is powerful and wonderful and a reflection of the love of Christ, but that's all it is. That's not, that's not gospel community. The point is that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And from there, I would argue that because you proclaim his excellencies, let me just say, to go back to the beginning, what this looks like is, this work has been done. I have received mercy. And now I step as one who is full of his given, fully lavished mercy. I step into this collective place called the, the community of Christ, the body of Christ. All of us stocked up with mercy. We step in, and now we uh, give ourselves freely one to another and mutually upbuild without concern for our own upbuilding. 
That's a Trinitarian dynamic, right? The idea is that Jesus is full, the, the, the Son is full in himself, the Father is full in himself, the Spirit is full in himself, and they mutually upbuild the other person. They praise, they honor the other persons of the Trinity, but none of those, because they are upbuilt by the others, none of those is concerned with their own. They already have it in the other, right? I was at Disney World one year with some friends, and there was one of those street performers. His name was Delman the Bellman. And <laughs> he was actually super talented. I was really impressed with this guy. He went to clown college. And um, that wasn't really my ambition at that time, but, but it was cool. And he had us sit on buckets. Like, it was four of us, but the Trinity, if, let's imagine there were three. There were, there, we sat on buckets, and then we all leaned back into the laps of the other people, and they took the buckets away, and nobody had to hold themselves up. And it was really amazing. The, the analogy falls through because you could only do it for a certain period of time, and he kept trying to make us laugh and make us fall. But I just thought, nobody had to hold the other ones up. Everybody was, was held up by the other. And so when it comes to Christian community, basically we say, we all receive the Trinitarian fullness. We receive gospel mercy. So when we step into Christian community, it is not primarily a place of need. It's a place that we go out of fullness, and then we spread that love, that energy, that joy from person to person, mutually upbuilding the others. You see all this language in the Bible about encouragement, but it's not primarily so that I can find something that hasn't already been given to me. Not primarily. There are reflections of that. There is need in you and in every person in the body because we're sinful, but the point is to lift up one another ultimately, and I would just say that secondary, ultimately to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Galatians 5.13 would be the horizontal expression of the same kind of vertical reality. It says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, here it is again. You've been called to live. You're already free. You're already free. But don't use this as an opportunity for the, for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. That's the point of Christian community. Another way to say this is, if you are thinking to yourself, that the point of gospel community is that I can find friends. Uh, I think you're probably missing the biblical point. We'll get there a little more in depth in a little while. So I really want to spend the rest of our time just framing what gospel community is, and I'm going to say like five or six things, okay? And then a lot of things in between those. (laughs) What gospel community is, number one, gospel community is anticipating the day of judgment. I didn't think I was going to say that one first. Gospel community is anticipating the day of judgment. Uh, I list that first for a couple of reasons. One is because in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says it explicitly. I think I have a slide for that one. Do I have Hebrews 10, 24, 25? I don't? Okay. Well, I'll just read it. Uh, Hebrews 10, coming off a whole treatment of how Jesus has done the things that has made the final offering that you don't need to make anymore. It starts to talk about how we live together. And in verses 24 and 25, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. This is is an exhortation toward community, an exhortation toward togetherness, but encouraging one another, saying, Come on, let's do it. We can hold hold fast our confidence, firm to the end. Let's do that together. And it says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a quote from Martin Luther I heard a few years ago, really, really helpful for me. He said, in the Christian life, there are two days that really matter. There's this day and that day, meaning the present and the day of judgment. 
And I just was teaching in Sunday school yesterday in Second Peter chapter 3, which talks about the day is going to come like a thief and the heavens will roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. It's a scary, apocalyptic passage. And I thought to myself, you know, I think about death a lot. And I think about heaven and eternity a lot. I don't think about the day of judgment that much. I don't think about the apocalyptic moment of the second coming, the heavens roaring. I don't think about the, 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 the heavenly bodies melting. And it just made me think, I think I can, I can get this kind of utopian ideal of I can, I can get together with a community of like-minded believers. Sometimes, sometimes Northwestern College can feel like this or Bethel can feel like this. Where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we can hang out together and it, it'll be really sweet. But the reality is we're on a conveyor belt towards judgment. We're on a conveyor belt towards eternity. Every person lives forever. So if nothing else, I just want you to think to yourselves, not, not to divorce your mind from every person lives forever when you think about what gospel community is. This is your eternal family, and judgment is coming. So when we consider how to stir one another up, other up to love and good deeds, when we consider assembling together, the reason we do that or the reason we emphasize it with more vigilance is because we see the day approaching. That's number one. Number two, the gospel, gospel community is a community. <laughs> You could say a collective if you want. Gospel community is a community or a collective. We live in an individualized culture, a strongly individualized culture relative to most cultures in the history of the world, but the Bible is a, is a pluralized text by and large. When you read First Peter, it's written to a group of people. You are a chosen race. You are a holy priesthood. You are a, uh, did I mess it up? Royal priesthood, a holy nation, right? Like you, you, y'all, this is where the South comes in handy. Um, y'all are that. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, Let the word of Christ, I think I have this one. Yeah, I got this one, Sam? Huge. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that you is a y'all. That's a vosotros in, in Spanish, for those of y'all who have ever studied like Castilian Spanish. Uh, vosotros. Yeah, vos. So let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. That this is plural. So even when you think to yourself, ooh, yeah, this is a good word for me. Tomorrow I need to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly. That's not what it's saying. It's saying your brother or sister in the Lord needs to say things to you about the Bible. Like y'all need to do that together. You need to sing to one another those things. And so we have on our staff team in Charleston, we have a flavor. We have 30 flavors that we try to taste like. And it's uh, a weird way to say it, but you know, that's what it is. The flavor of our team, right? And so one of them is we say beware of TOG, T-A-W-G. I don't know if y'all know that uh, uh, acronym, TOG, T-A-W-G, Time Alone with God. It's a good thing, but we say beware of it only because of this passage right here. It's like we can be so hyper-individualized that we forget that most of the Scripture is written to people in the plural, much less that the printing press wasn't invented until 1440, and so people didn't have individual Bibles to go study with anyway. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have a wondrous privilege in being able to study the Bible individually, but the point of what it is to actually live the Christian life is to let the Word of Christ dwell in y'all, y'all, you all, richly. So you're speaking these things. So it can make you feel strange when you think, how, what is the depth of my normal conversation with another person? Is it mostly goofy? Do I mostly talk about sports or um, weather? And then maybe when I have a one-on-one, -on -one, we open the Bible, but otherwise we don't, because I don't know that that's the spirit of this. 
necessarily, is to let the, the word of Christ dwell among you richly. So uh, point being, this is a pluralized Bible with a high, high emphasis on being a collective. And so I just want to admonish everybody in here because there might be some people, I know that there's a the spectrum of introverts and extroverts in the room, and there, I, I, I think personality is legitimate. As I get older and older, I find myself supremely aware of the different lenses in the room and how people take things in. And there are some people in here that are like, man, I just don't really love being around people. Hopefully you don't say it just like that. Um, that's not true. I'm just going to say it like that. There are some people who don't like being around big groups of people for long periods of time because they can get drained over time. Uh, that might be true of a lot of people in this room. I would argue that the entire personality of, of your generation is moving its way introverted by nature of pre and accelerated during COVID. Uh, and that's not a negative necessarily. There, there are some negatives and some positives. But all people are relational. There's, you know the movie Frozen? Uh, personal fave. And uh, actually it's not. I think Frozen's really good. I thought Frozen 2 was disjointed. But <laughs> uh, in Frozen, there's a part when um, Kristoff and Anna are walking up to North Mountain because Elsa's kind of gone off the rails and she's already up there. She's her, she, Frozen fractals all around up there. And she, um, they're walking and Kristoff is kind of bugging Anna and he's like, hey, why are you just chasing after your sister? Have you ever thought that maybe she just wants to be alone? And, he, and she responds really quickly in a little pithy statement. She says, nobody wants to be alone. Nobody wants to be alone. And that resonated with me. I remember when I saw it. We were driving to Minnesota, and the kids were watching Frozen in the back seat, and I saw it really dangerously in the rearview mirror while I was trying to drive. And uh, I thought, oh, that's good. That's good, Anna. That's good, Kristen Bell. That nobody wants to be alone. Nobody wants to be alone. Like, we are image bearers of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are made to be in community. And so I just... I think that we, everybody in this room, probably is less good at being connected to other people as they should be. And I realize I might be treading on delicate ground because in you know, psychological terms, somebody in here might be like, well, what about codependency? And I would say, I think it's a real thing. I think most people are more self-isolating and hyper-individualized than they need to be most people. And I think some people wield their introversion that way. Some people wield their psych, psych talk that way. I'm a super extroverted, so I'm aware of that. And I'm, so I'm, I don't want to like impose my extroversion on you. But I do want to impose biblical community and relationality on you. We live in a collective. You are members one of another. That's what Romans 12:5 says, that you are individually members one of another. You are one body. This is your eternal family. And so someone, when someone, the implication would be if someone asks you, what, is, um, what are you going to do with your life? It's good for you to think our life. <laughs> Even if you don't know who the hour is, exactly. You're not your own, first of all. You've been bought with a price. You glorify God with your body. And secondly, you are part of a collective. You're part of a body. And so it's not just your life in college. It's not just your life anywhere. You are, con- you are part of a chosen race and a royal priesthood everywhere you are. No one wants to be alone. So I, I want to counter that briefly with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Did anyone ever try to do the German pronunciation of that? I'm not going to try. 
Let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. Let him who is not in community be aware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. So let me say that again. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. So if you want, if you want like a check on your, like the ditch that you find yourself in, it would be, if you can never be alone, there's something wrong. And if you can only be, if you like have to be alone and you're not in community, beware of being alone. I'm just trying to put the accent on the second one for this one in light of the history of our culture. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Gulp. So, Dietrich said that in Life Together. Take it for what it is. Um, more practically, in light of us being in a collective, being together cannot be virtual. Being together cannot be virtual. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a season where it's like, we have to be virtual. Like, I understand that. But I, I, rem I was just struck by Paul's words in Romans 1 where he's like, I long to be with you. He's writing to these people he's not with. And he's like, I long to be with you that we might share, encur be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I long to be with you. We mutually encourage. He's saying, even as I write these words to you, I, I'm writing scriptural inspiration to you. I, we got to be in person. We've got to be in person. And so we, we live in a moment, to quote Tony Renke, where we tend to be, we're always alone in public, but never alone in private, right? So it's like when you're, you're in public and you got your headphones in or you got your scroll on your phone or whatever, you're not really connected to people. But then when you're by yourself, you don't have time to actually reflect because you're TikToking or whatever you're doing. And so just consider being together cannot be virtual. Another way to say this is, your Instagram friend is not your friend. I'll just put it real plainly. Um, it's obviously there's some overlap there, and there's somebody who might be your in-person friend, but they're not your friend by, by virtue of that. I, I remember meeting a student for the first time. This is the first time I'd heard this. So he went to the U, and he had never had a real friend, he said, that he didn't meet through online gaming. And I was like, holy crap, like, how do you, what does that mean? And I'm willing to consider that we live in that day, but I'm just going to show my cards and say, I, am, I don't have authority in your life. I don't have authority in my staff and students' life to make this happen. This is a whole other talk. But I tell my staff that I think that they should be done with social media altogether, all of them, all the way. I think they're redemptive things, but I think it's like 15%. So y'all, I, I am not your pastor. I'm telling you a personal preference I have. This is like in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul's like, yeah, I think I have the Spirit, but I'm, this is not a command of the Lord. It's like, um, I think it, I'm talking to myself when I say it because there are a lot of moments. My son told me the other day, he said, Dad, you're always on your phone. And I thought, it took, I, I've, I've done this before, but it took a lot for me not to throw my phone across the room because I'm mad at myself and I'm self-condemning the whole thing. In that moment, it's not good. It's, it's sin in itself, but... I thought, oh my gosh, I better not get to, he better not get to 21, 25. And someone said, hey, what's your relationship like with your dad? And he says, he's always on his phone. You brutal. So just don't, don't be that person. Okay. Um, and finally, just to, to, to hammer home the second one, the, la the rest of the points will move much faster. Um, family is an analogy for the church not the other way around. Like the people in this room are your eternal family. 
We, we, do, we, we put a lot of stock in the focus on the family thing, and I think there's some real beauty and benefit to that. But at the end of the day, Jesus is very clear that family in, in biological family is a shadow of and a, and a metaphor for your eternal family, which is the, the family of the church. Uh, and I think the implication of that is basically to say, however close I am with my family, I should be like that with other believers. And, and probably more so because a lot of us are now thinking about whatever dysfunction we have in our families. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I hope it's better than that. But, but that means the kind of agony you have emotionally over the travails of your family you have over your brothers and sisters in the room. It means that one of your first thoughts in the morning goes towards one of your brothers and sisters in the room. That's how this works. Like you're connected to their life. doesn't mean you're responsible for their salvation. doesn't mean there aren't moments for you to remember God is sovereign over their life, but you agonize over them. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says about himself when he thinks about people in the Bible. He says in 1 Thessalonians 3, for now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. So it's a real, it's actually a collective. Okay, we're moving faster. Number three, the gospel community is deeper than classical friendship. Gospel community is deeper than classical friendship. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and in it he's talking about friendship, and he says this, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. You like Uno? I thought I was the only one, right? It's like, oh, yeah, we love, we play spicy, you know? Do y'all play spicy, you know? Okay, just making sure. I didn't know if that had made its way north. Maybe it made its way south. Who's from Colorado? Kale. Well, I was in Boulder, Colorado in sixth grade, and they had wild cherry Pepsi and crystal Pepsi. Newest thing I'd ever heard of, right? I was like, this is amazing. Didn't come to Charleston for three years. And I was like, we're way behind the times. But in some ways, good, because there's a lot of pot in Colorado. Um, <laughs> The, uh, but I, I do think we are programmed to think that my life is basically about finding best friends. My life is about finding the people that I relate to the best. Like, who do I like the most? Who do I have the most in common with? Who likes to fish like I do? Who likes, to, who likes um, cold brew like I do, right? Whatever it is. And all those things are good. That's just not the heart of gospel community. So especially when you're in college, I think the natural thought is the point of college is fun. And the way I have fun is I find friends that I can relate to. And if I can find friends that I can relate to over a common interest, awesome. I'm going to continue to relate to them over that common interest, and we're going to play Settlers of Catan together or whatever it is. But somewhere underneath that is what gospel community actually is, which is, <laughs> i got to go back to my text, which is, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be as holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What that means is that your companionship, at least in the eternal family, your companionship runs deeper than personality or common interest. So the way the friendship works is you would say, you too, you also find Jesus, the, the Lord, Savior, and treasure of your life. You too, man, we got a lot in common, more in common than anybody else I know even the person who loves settlers so much that they, like, dress up for it, right? Like, that's where your companionship runs deeper than personality or common interest. Or whatever. Maybe it's the Enneagram itself. Maybe you're like, man, I'm a personality test geek, and I can geek out with somebody. And I'm not saying that's not fun. I'm not saying it's not sweet. I'm not saying there's not something redemptive in God imaging in it. I'm saying that's not the heart of gospel community. 
The heart of gospel community is to know and make known the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What that means is, and you're feeling it all summer long, I know it because you got people in your room that you're like, that guy's weird, that girl's weird, I don't think we'd be friends otherwise. And hopefully, if the Lord is doing what he tends to do, what he's, what he's doing is building these bonds that run deeper than y'all's common interests. And you're realizing, oh, that's my eternal brother. Like, we're going to be brothers forever. Forever. Like, you're never going to stop being brothers and sisters. Think about it for a minute. Y'all will be family and much tighter family in the age to come than you are right now. That means the people in your room right now. So you're not just surviving the summer. These are your brothers and sisters. Tighter than your blood forever. Okay? And that also means that when you think about the friendships that you have brought into college, that you have brought into this summer, that you will have on the campus, that your friendship, because it is aimed at knowing and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, friends, to say that you're friends isn't exactly the right word. You guys ever seen the wheel diagram before? Y'all done the wheel this summer at all? So you got that wheel, Christ at the center, right? The gospel, the cross at the center, and then you've got four spokes, two vertical spokes, two horizontal spokes. The vertical spokes are the word and prayer. This is God communicating to you, you communicating to God, and the horizontal spokes are uh, fellowship and evangelism. Meaning, if there's somebody who doesn't know Christ, your relationship to them is called or defined by evangelism. And if they do know Christ, your relationship is called or defined by fellowship. In both cases, the point of your relationship is to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I think it's just helpful for you to consider the paradigm that this person who I think of as my friend is not just my friend because we're in fill-in-the-blank -blank club of interest together, but because we together are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And then don't conflate those. Like, instead of just making those kind of run either linking them or making them run alongside of each other where you're like, yeah, we're both. We both love basketball and we love Jesus. We say, no, there is one incomparable bond in our life. And the fact that we love basketball is sweet and peripheral. Okay? Okay. Almost there. Number four. Uh, gospel community is, to borrow your theme, exilic. Exilic, and this kind of comes with anticipating the, the second coming, anticipating the judgment. But we're not a commune, uh, like maybe an Amish commune or a monastic commune or a convent where it's like we're just going to hide from the world. Uh, we're in it, maybe, maybe a better way to say it, if you think about what the early church was, would be an advancing commune, like an aggressive, attacking commune. So we had a, a conference at church about a month ago where a guy came in who's a PhD and he just lives and swims in learning the second, third, fourth century church. And he said, what they were was a group of people who were like, like Acts 2, Acts 4 say they were together. They had all things in common. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. They, no one claimed anything as their own. They sold everything. They laid at the apostles' feet. They distributed it to whoever had need and then beyond into the centuries after the apostles. Um, but they were having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Like they were on a mission. So if your thought of gospel community moves to, man, we're going to have so much fun Friday and not, we are a platoon. 
Like we are, we are fighting for the souls of people. We are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you read 1 Peter, what you realize is this is a beautiful group of people who have a very clear mission. And they're being reviled for it in every sphere of life. And so it gives, Peter gives exhortations about different social spheres, different, different areas of life where you're going to suffer. And, and you're going to suffer because you know what you're for. You're for proclaiming excellencies of Jesus. You're being built together, but you're not being built together in a vacuum. You're being built together as you move forward. So you're exiles, in other words. You, you, you think of your citizenship in heaven, and you're moving forward. And so when I was in college, my experience of this, and I'm sure I glorify it, but my experience of this was we had a ton of fun, but we didn't have fun just because we had fun. We had a common vision. We would say, I remember, I would meet with my brothers and say, who on the hall needs to hear the gospel? Who hasn't heard yet? Who needs a follow-up? How are we going to engage this person? We would get up this was so dumb. We'd go to bed at like 1 in the morning and get up at 6.30 to pray. And by the end of the week, we were so, so tired that the guy who was discipling me at that time, he fell asleep during his own prayer. He goes, Lord, I pray that today you would protect us. Is what I fell asleep while I was praying. That's what he did. And I was like, this is absurd. We're so over the top. But we were up every morning asking the Lord to reach the guys on the hall. And God, we had fun. We had so much fun because fun wasn't the aim. Because just our friendship wasn't the aim. Because our aim was to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It was an exilic existence in that way. Um, last couple things. Here we go. Five. Un- gospel community is unconditional. Gospel community is unconditional. This is going to give you a little bit more qualitative sense of what it is to relate one to another in gospel community. I just want to say, um, the world is based on performance. The world is based on achievement. The world is based on continued consistent performance and continued consistent achievement. So if you spend any time hearing anything from the media, which we all do, you realize that um, forgiveness is not a value at all. People don't, that's not how this works. You audition to be accepted, and then you continually audition to be accepted. It is one long episode of America's Got Talent, this whole life, right? And I want you to hear, just as we said at the beginning, but I think what is true about God and us is true about us with us. There is no entry fee. There is no audition to being received in the body of Christ. If someone says, I have a singular boast, it's the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Through him, I've been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to me. And if you go daily, prove it. That was to wake y'all up. Well, at least it had that effect. Prove it. Prove it again. Prove it again. Prove it again. You said, you said this. You didn't do it. Prove it again. And you become this exacting person. That is not gospel community. If you decide that you're going to cancel a friend, that's not gospel community. The, the commands of Jesus about forgiveness are incredibly simple, and they're incredibly radical. Not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. So if you say, well, how many times should I forgive? This person has wronged me. And I'm here now thinking, this is where it gets really, really tough. 
I'm thinking of cases of abuse. And I know they're in the room. I'm thinking of cases of slander, malice, backtalk. I'm thinking of adultery. And I'm not saying that there aren't, um, there isn't experiential wisdom to apply to those moments. I'm not saying simply act like nothing happened. I am saying there is no cause for sustained unforgiveness ever in your life. And if forgiveness is not like the beating heart, I believe the, the distinguishing attribute of a Christian is mercy. Like radical, I can't believe you forgave them mercy. And if you can't live in that, then you're still yet to, I think, really experience the depths of the love of Christ for you. Um, and I know every situation in the room is different. But I'm saying there is, there is in pop psychology, in the exp- in sp- expressive individualism, there is this idea that there, I am justified in exercising vengeance in my heart. And people will say, I love justice under the guise of vengeance. And that's evil. And so I just want you to feel it. And, and I think most of the people in this room, just in your day-to-day relationships, that's where the little battles happen, where it's like, am I willing to fully forgive this person? And, and then some people, like I've read these articles, are like, well, yeah, I can forgive but not forget. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't, I don't have time for that necessarily, where it's like, no, I, I get it when it's like, I'm not going to be dumb. And so like, I, have, I have a relative who is, has been in the throes of alcoholism for a long time. And I'm not, going to, I'm not going to say, you know what? I don't even think about it. Why don't you babysit my kids, right? Like, I'm not going to do that. That'd be foolish. But I'm not going to treat this person in my life as if they have an offense against me that I need to hold. That's not in line with the truth of the gospel, okay? So it is unconditional in that sense. The, the counter to that, and I, I don't mean, I don't, it's not a counter, it's a supplement. And this is the last point, is that gospel community is confrontational. Gospel community is confrontational. I think there's, you probably can figure out which side of the, the soapy bubble you might slip down to here, but there's some, they're like, yes, come one, come all. We are all outcasts and we are broken. This is a hospital for sinners, which it is, it is, it is, it is. Um, but because of that, we can simultaneously be non-confrontational and not, not simultaneously say we are all called in this place to be built up as a spiritual house. We are called to be conformed to the image of, of Jesus. And therefore, if there is someone caught in sin, I will simultaneously not treat them as their sins deserve. I will simultaneously not hold their sins against them as I say, hey, I need to tell you something. Jesus is sufficient for you. And you can have him and walk away from this bondage that you are in. And if you can't talk that way, you're not living in gospel community. If you can't confront, we're terrible broadly in the American church at confrontation. We're all terrified. There, if there's somebody in the room who's like overly butt-kicker confrontational, you probably already know that you are, and if you don't, somebody else in the room should be butt-kicker confrontational enough to tell you. Um, most of the people in this room are terrified. Most people are afraid. You're afraid to say, hey, you're caught in a trespass, and I want to see you restored. This is directly Galatians 6, verse 1. I know that you're caught. I know that you're not walking in the Spirit right now. I'm looking at myself. I want to say this with as much gentleness as possible because I know that I'm prone to the same things. But you've got to walk out of this. Are you going to get stuck in it? You're going to die in it. And I don't want to see that. 
That's called love. That's gospel community. And so it's probably helpful for you right now to ask yourself, is there something in the life of somebody that is in my sphere of influence on the project right now, and I don't mean for this next week to be this just like slaughterhouse on the carnage on the project. Uh, what I mean is, is there someone who could hear the sufficiency of Christ for them such that it, like, it would break that pattern? Uh, I like to think of it as a pillow fight, okay? So it's like, I need to come swinging with this thing. They need to feel it, but when they get hit, they're going to hit with feathers. They're going to get hit with, hey, hey, I see that this has been, this, that you're kind of stuck in this bondage. I want you to know Jesus died for you. You have no need for there to be any more approval from anyone because you are stuffed up. Boom. Your daddy owns the universe. Boom. You know, it's like, uh, that's, that's the thought process. And so we have this, like, in our minds about confronting somebody because we forget that what we're offering them is life. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Say, so I want to invite you to live. Would you come and live? I'm going to offer you life. Would you take it? There is full joy for you. Do you want it? And I want you to know that I'm with you because I, I suck at this too. I'm bad, I'm bad at this too. But that's how we have to learn to talk if we're going to do gospel community well. I just think there was enough security and freedom in the early church when I read it to be like, I think these people were free enough to say stuff. And they were probably bad at doing it all the time too. And then somebody else would be like, hey, would you confront me some more? If you want to have a, a real good a help here, say to somebody in your room this week, hey, I want you to know I'm trying to believe that I'm all stocked up in Jesus. I want you to know that the work is done. So would you tell me something this week that you think I'm not believing enough about all that Christ is for me that's keeping me in bondage that maybe I can't see? Would you be willing to say that to me? That's a good question. It's a hard question to ask God. It's terrifying on some level. I don't even know why, because you're asking someone to tell you good news. But maybe that's a takeaway. Okay? So we'll finish here. Practically... Just a few things. These will be 30 seconds each, okay? And then we'll be done. I know it's really hot in here. Um, sorry. Practical considerations. One, we're not home yet, okay? Uh, we're not home yet. That's one of our family, family's family creed statements. That's our last one. We are not home yet. Uh, what that means is it, it means that you're not an ideal community, so don't, like, don't think to yourself, i got to find this ideal community. Everybody in this room is more sinful than they understand. Everybody in the room. The people, like when someone confronts you this week and they're like, hey, I think this is a problem in your life, you, sh you should say, you don't even know the half of it. Like it's worse than you know, it's worse than I know. It runs deep. But we're all too prideful for that, right? And then we keep going and God's merciful to us. But the, the, the practical behind that we're not home yet is don't, don't church shop, meaning Thank the Lord for the community that you're in because he's sanctifying you and everybody else in the community that you're in so that you're not like, I just got to find a, I got to pick from the buffet of communities and kind of fabricate my own and maybe we can move to Montana and build a commune there. Like, that's not how this is going to work, okay? So I, I just see a lot of church shoppers and there, there's wisdom that has to go with that, but just try to embrace and love the community that you're part of. Number two, prioritize your embodied community. That just goes back to the virtual thing, but I'm like, it's just going to be much more helpful for you. Even one morning I was in my kitchen, and my wife, I was texting a couple of other pastors on staff. It was like 7.45 on a Saturday morning. And Lisa goes, who are you texting? 
And I was like, oh, no, this is actually, this is a couple of the pastors. It's, it's you know, a serious conversation. I'm talking to Van and Leland. And she goes, what are Van and Leland doing in our kitchen on, at 7.45 on a Saturday morning? And I was like, ooh, babe, cut me deep just there, right? Like, why are you talking to them? We are here. And I thought, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever text. Um, I do it too much. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's not redemptive value to texting. I just would say, think about how you can prioritize your embodied community, which probably amounts to put your phone down when you can. Um, we, at our project, I don't know if y'all do this, we do phone buckets. Like, we just take up the phones during these meetings. I don't know if y'all want to do that for us time if you can, if you want. And during D groups, we just take up the phones. Um, so you can focus. Because when I was on project, when I was a student, we didn't have these newfangled things called cell phones. And we had to go to the pay phone to call our parents. Because we had one phone on project. It was for emergencies only. And uh, that was all we had. But there was some beauty to it, because you could actually just keep looking at a person. Uh, so prioritize your embodied community. Three, get up off your couch. This is where the rubber really meets the road. Uh, you're going to graduate in a little while. And this might actually pertain to your life in college anyway, but when you get to the quote-unquote real world, let's say that you're working an eight-to-five job, you got to get up early. If you want to meet with the Lord in the morning, you want to calibrate your mind and your heart in the morning, hopefully your thoughts go to some other people you want to pray for, how are you going to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, all that stuff. you got to get yourself presentable to other humans, and then you got to work. Work is tiring. Hopefully you're relating well to people, but I don't know that this is your primary fueling community. Then you get off work, 5 o'clock, let's say. Let's say that you want to do some exercise. So you go to Planet Fitness because it's $10 a month. And you work out there, or you go to CrossFit or whatever you do, and it's like $40,000 a month. And then you, um, <laughs> you finish that, and you get home, and you're whipped because you, work, you, you just went to work, and then you worked out, and now you're there, and you're like, okay. I could either find community with the kids from Stranger Things uh, or watch Alone, which I kind of enjoy, ironically. Uh, and, you know, whatever, what, you know, what are, what are other popular ones? Tell me some popular ones. Netflix and whatnot. What's a show that you watch? I'm not saying shows are bad. Squid Game, one of the most popular shows in the history of Netflix. Okay, so there's this moment. I'm just saying there's this moment, right? There's this moment where you either say, I'm going to watch the Netflix or I'm going to think to myself, how can I step into this place where through love we can serve one another? How can we be built together as a living house? How can we learn to know and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous life? And then you got to get off your couch. you got to go somewhere. And for whatever reason, that moment is hard. That moment is hard. It's always worth it. There's never a time when it's not worth it. And there are times when Netflix is probably the right call. But more often than not, in that moment, the right call is to connect with other people. The right, the right call is to be part with your eternal family. I doubt, I would guess that 90% of the people in the room, including myself, need to heed that call. To think, who am I really experiencing community with? Is it these people on the screen? Jim and Pam from The Office? It's old school, but we, we watch it over here. Um, so don't hear me say that I'm disparaging the art form of television and film. I just think it needs to be in its proper place when it comes to that moment when you don't want to get off your couch because that first night becomes two and then becomes a month and a half. And then it becomes a year. And then maybe you go to church on Sundays. 
and then it's just kind of over. And I've been on enough projects to know that that happens a lot, even if you're fired up right now. Since 1999, I've been on projects basically every summer, and I can look at the pictures year after year after year, and I can tell you the people who have walked away. And they are in the dozens and probably the hundreds by now. So get off your couch. <laughs> I'm serious. Think about how you're going to intentionally schedule ways to be with people. Do it at school, too. And then last, this is for kind of calling question. The question is, who am I going with? Who am I going with? And that means when you consider your calling, when you consider what the Lord would have for you in your life, it's not just your life. And so what you're asking, my wife and I are asking ourselves this question right now. We just had this conversation like two days ago. It's not just what are we going to do or where are we going to be, but who is going to walk alongside of us in this? Who is the community that is coming with us? Who will be with me that we might be built up together as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood? What is the church community that I will be part of wherever I'm going? So the primary aim is not however many zeros you can have in your salary. The primary aim is not even how you might demonstrate your gifting and your studies, your major the best. The primary aim is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Everybody lives forever. Okay. So I'm going to pray. I know that was a ton. I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we have one question to think through for a minute. Father God, I just ask that you would help a couple of these things to land. Uh, and I pray that I, I just don't know the situations of the people in the room. I ask that, uh, I mean, I think about some of the things I just said and how sensitive they can be. I ask that you would help people run back to the foot of the cross and remember that the work has been done. Man, there's so many things that you could condemn me for, and you do not. Uh, you call me your son. You call us together your living house, your sons and daughters, your family. And so I pray that that, that sense of grace would be on this room, and then you would help us to remember that we have an invitation to live and there'll be a couple things that rightly convict, that rightly transform, that rightly encourage uh, in here. And I'm praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's a question. Very simply, how have you set up your current community and how does that need to change? How have you set up your current community and how does that need to change? And I'm thinking here about like, do you still consider non-believing friends from high school who have a common interest to be your best friends, to be your closest family? Does that need to change? Do you connect with believers in your life in a way that, that helps you and them be mutually served as you know and proclaim the excellencies of Christ? How have you set up the community in your life? How does that need to change? Maybe it's just, yeah, basically when I'm at, at school, Five nights a week, I spend about three hours on Netflix, and then I go to bed because I just need to study and do that. Think about that question for four minutes or so. Go. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2022 Summer Training Project hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but please don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.